Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania, proclaiming the historic faith and the uncompromising grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, check out our website, graceanglicanonline.com. chapter 8, verses 7 through 17. I want you to imagine for a minute that you're part of a very elaborate game. You've shown up to the game because, well, you were invited and it seemed like a fun thing to attend. And you got there, and the game organizers began to explain to you the rules of the game. And after playing this game for a little while you realize that the rules they gave you made it impossible for you to win. There was no way you were going to win with the rules they gave you. What you didn't know and what they neglected to tell you is that there was actually an entirely different set of rules that you could also choose to play by, but they didn't want you to know that. And so tonight, we're going to uncover uh, this second set of rules of life that we can play by. And, and I'm going to teach you how to cheat I'm going to teach you how to cheat at this game that we've been set up. When I was in college, I think it was my sophomore year, but I went to college for five years, so I don't know like which year it was, but it was maybe my sophomore year. At the beginning of the school year, uh, we had this spiritual, or, uh, the student life department had this little fun like get to know you thing, and on the sand volleyball courts on campus, there was a tug of war competition. And there were 10 or 12 people on one side and 10 or 12 people on the other side. And we got into the sand volleyball pit. And I was the last person in on my side. I was, I guess, the anchor guy because I just sit there, I suppose. Um, and as we're pulling a tug of war in a sand volleyball pit, you can imagine what starts to happen when you tug of war in sand. Everyone starts to dig in. The sand underneath your feet starts to fail, and everyone starts to get tired and give out, and eventually somebody loses. Somewhere in the process of this tug-of-war match, it occurred to me that just a few feet behind me, there was some sort of wooden beam that was anchored in the ground. And it occurred to me that if I could get to that wooden beam... I could just lock my feet into the backside of that beam and just pull and pull and pull. And so I did. I cheated. I locked my feet into that beam and just kind of sat there and rode like rowing a big boat. And it was amazing. When your feet were anchored, everybody just comes your way. (laughs) And you you just pull and we won. And I cheated. And so tonight I'm going to tell you how to cheat the game. Um... How do we cheat the game? Romans chapter 8. You know, the hard part when preaching Romans, especially when you're preaching the lectionary, where it doesn't go in really sequential order, there's a lot of stuff that happens between two weeks ago, Romans 6, and tonight, Romans 8. So I'm going to try to recap very, very quickly. In Romans chapter 6, if you recall from my sermon two weeks ago, uh, we saw the the, um, discussion of two different kingdoms. We saw the the kingdom of law and the kingdom of grace, and that we're no longer under law, but we're under grace, and we are now free from, not from the righteous requirements of the law, those are fulfilled in Christ, but we are free from the condemnation that comes with the law. 
Romans chapter 7, uh, we see, as Paul begins to discuss, that while we are free from law and we are free in grace and we are free uh, to, to be truly righteous for the first time, we are, in fact, simultaneously sinners and saints. Romans chapter 7 talks about, you know, I, I don't do what I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man, who, who can save me? Um, and then we come into tonight's passage, Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 begins a discussion of the Holy Spirit, about the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 25 times. Uh, 15 of those are in the first uh, 11 or 12 verses of this chapter. So this chapter really is about the Holy Spirit. But Paul is not giving us information and data about the Holy Spirit. He's giving us... uh, a teaching about what the Holy Spirit accomplishes. And he begins Romans chapter 8 after his discussion in Romans 7 that we are simultaneously saints and sinners. He begins in Romans 8.1 uh, with the simple promise that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Okay, So we have to remember that as we move into everything else that follows. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. At the end of chapter 8, He says this, um, he he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he begins Romans 8 with no condemnation and he ends Romans 8 with no separation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. No separation from God for those who are in Christ. Everything else comes between those two bookends. And so we need to keep that in mind as we unpack these verses. And so we come to my verses for tonight, Romans 8, 7 through 17. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So back in Romans 6, he makes a contrast between living under the law and living under grace. In the first part of chapter 8, which we are not going to cover tonight, he sets up a contrast between living in the flesh and living in the spirit. Living in the flesh versus living in the spirit. And when Paul uses this language, flesh uh, is not referring, obviously, to our physical bodies. He's using this as a theological term to refer to our way of being. We live as we lived under the realm of the law, the dominion of the law. We also used to live under the dominion of the flesh. And while we were under the dominion of the flesh, he says in verse 7, we were hostile to God because the flesh uh, does not submit to God's law because it cannot. So when we're living under the the realm of the flesh, this realm of, of sinfulness, we are hostile to the things of God. And we, we run from the things of God, and we cannot please Him. That's a point that we've made many, many times here at Grace Anglican, and so I won't belabor it, but we need to understand it. The flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay? So, he's not saying you're in the Spirit, and it's, some, and it's conditional, but it's not like this unknown conditional if the Holy Spirit, in fact, or if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're in the Spirit. He's saying the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and therefore you are not in the flesh. 
He's making an identity marker for them. You are now in the Spirit and no longer in the flesh. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit, uh, because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So, I'm, I'm moving through this first part because I'm really going to focus on, on verse 12 and following. So he says, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, the Spirit of life, that same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and it will give life to your mortal body, because he dwells in you also. So it's, a, it's an identity that we are in the Spirit, and this is the Spirit of life. Okay? And now he moves into the second half of our reading, which is where I really want to spend my time this evening. The first part of the reading talks about the Spirit of life. And the second part talks about the spirit of adoption. And he begins, uh, in, or he continues in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. I want to talk about the proper placement of debt, followed by the proper displacement of fear. Placement of debt and displacement of fear. Uh, our debt... Paul says, after he's made this very long argument, and after he's come to chapter 8, and he's made this argument that it is the spirit of life that will resurrect us, he says, therefore, you don't owe the flesh anything. You don't owe the flesh anything. You remember the illustration I used a couple of weeks ago of, of the community, the nation that had two classes of people. You had a, a master race and a slave race. And it didn't matter who you were, if you were in the slave race and someone from the master race told you you had to get down on the ground and clean their shoes on the spot, you had to do it. And then a new king came to the, to the kingdom and declared that all the slaves were now free. And they didn't have to listen to the old masters anymore. But those old slaves, because they had been conditioned to a certain way of being, even though they had been declared righteous, they had to learn, or excuse me, declared free, they had to learn to live in that freedom. And the problem was they would show up on the street and the old master class would say, you have to get down and wash my shoes right now. And they would still do it, even though it had been declared to them that they didn't have to any longer. You see, that old flesh, that old dominion of flesh doesn't own us and we don't owe it anything. Uh, perhaps you have remember when you were a kid and you had a friend who was particularly crafty and that friend would say, hey, Come on over. I'm going to let you share my candy. And you say, sure. You're going to share candy with me. That's great. I'll, I'll take your candy. And the next day they come back and they say, remember that candy bar I gave you yesterday? Well, now you owe me. <laughs> See, they told you that they were giving you a candy bar. But in fact, they were only trapping you so that later you could pay them back even more. And that's the way the kingdom of the flesh works. The flesh takes far more from you than it will ever give you in return. The flesh says, sacrifice everything for this one moment of pleasure. And the next thing you know, you've lost your job and your family. The flesh says, you can indulge in this one thing right now and God will forgive you later. And that one thing turns into ten things and the next thing you know, you've gone places you never thought you would go before. 
The flesh says, come and, come and join me. And it's going to be great. And it is great for a minute. And then the next day they come back and they say, remember that great time I showed you? Now you owe me. Now you owe me. You see, the kingdom of the flesh only takes, never gives. And Paul says to his audience, you are no longer, uh, we are debtors, but not to the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything to live according to it. You can tell that old master when he comes up and sticks his bony finger in your chest and says, you owe me because I own you. Because every time I've told you to do something, you always did it before. And that means you have to do it now. You can tell that guy to go away because he doesn't have any hold on you. And you are a debtor, but you're not a debtor to the flesh. We're debtors to Jesus Christ. We're debtors to the spirit of life and to the spirit of adoption who takes nothing but gives everything. Takes nothing but gives everything. And so we're not debtors in the way we usually think of it. And so we have to have a proper placement of our, of our debt. Now Paul here in this language, he's, he's already spent a lot of time talking about how justification is free. It is a free gift. And so when he talks about debt... I don't think we need to understand this in, in the typical sense of someone gave us something and now we pay it back. I think he simply is saying, if you're going to consider this at all, consider that you actually owe sin nothing, but you owe God everything. Not that you could pay it back, but if we're keeping score, that's the way the scale balances out. You actually owe God everything. And so we need to understand too then, when he goes into verse 13, he says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's an obvious statement that he's been making all along. Those who live in the realm of the flesh will die. Those who live by the Spirit in the realm of the Spirit uh, and put to death the deeds of the body will live. Now here's the thing we need to understand about Paul's language here. Remember the context, Romans 1. At, or Romans 8, after coming out of Romans 7, where we talk about being simultaneously saints and sinners, he says in 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. At the end of chapter 8, he says, there is no separation for those who are in Christ. So what he means here is not to contradict himself and say, you're in Christ only if, only if you put to death the sins of the body, you mortify the flesh. What he's saying is that you are in Christ and because you're in Christ, you are living in the realm of the Spirit. And because you're living in the realm of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working within you to put to death those things. And that will happen. It's as if you say to your friend, I have a friend who's six foot five. Maybe you do too. He's six foot five. It's as if you say to Jim, my friend's name is Jim, Jim, you're six five. If you're really six foot five, can you get that tall, uh, that jar that's in the top of that tall cabinet that I can't reach. Well, it's obvious that Jim is six foot five. And it's obvious that Jim is going to be able to reach into that jar and get that. So your question of if you're really six foot five is actually another way of saying, I know you're six foot five, can you please get the jar, right? This is what Paul is saying. I know you're in the spirit. The fact that you will mortify the flesh is the necessary outcome of being in the spirit. This is what happens when you're in the spirit. Just like when you're six foot five, you can reach the tall jar on the shelf. This is what happens to you. So it's important, though, that we don't like gut this exhortation in verse 13. 
It's important that we don't just say what I just said and then dismiss it. Because there is an assumption here that when we're living in that place of the Spirit, there will be some sort of outward response to it. Uh, That the inner work that's going on within us is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Our sanctification, first and foremost, is the work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Remember we said... um, uh, last week, I, I used the, the Thomas Cranmer line, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. I want to revisit that because this is where I'm going with that. What the heart chooses, uh, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The Holy Spirit works within us to change our affections. We can't, you cannot change the things you love. You either love them or you don't most of the time. The Holy Spirit works within us to change our affections. And then we begin to make different choices. Paul's point to his audience, to his readers, is that the Holy Spirit is working in you because you are in the realm of the Spirit. And he is changing the affections that is within you. But now you have to start choosing to live in in accord with your new affections. And it's complicated, right? We all believe, as, as good Protestants, that justification is solely and completely the act of God upon a person. And when it comes to sanctification, it is rooted primarily and mostly and always in the work of Christ in you. But there is a response that's being asked for. And the response is, as your affections are being changed, walk in those new affections and live appropriately according to those new affections. Um, Here's how I sometimes look at this. I can remember a time in my life growing up in the church where I don't think I understood the gospel very well. And my response to exhortations to holy living was always, I need to do this because like, God's going to be really mad at me if I don't. God's going to be disappointed with me. And, and maybe I'll be sent to hell or worse. I don't know what could be worse, but maybe there's something. I don't know. I'm going to be sent, like it's bad. And I'm responding to God out of a sense of fear. Now, I don't know about you, but I had a father that could instill fear. And I did what I was told. (laughs) But fear is not the same as love. And fear is not the same as relationship. And before I started to understand the gospel, I responded to holiness out of a sense of fear and raw duty. And thanks be to God, as I've grown in understanding grace, and I hope this is happening to you, when I sin... My guilt and my shame doesn't come from a place of fear anymore. It comes from a place of profound disappointment in myself. Because I'd let him down again. That, and even though I don't know that my outward actions have changed much at all. When you live in the realm of the spirit, it changes your affections. And it changes the way you view holiness. And it's no longer something I do out of duty. It's something I do out of love. And my guilt and my shame on the backside of sin doesn't come from a sense of fear, but it comes from a sense of, of, of disappointment. That I've, I've let God down. I've let Christ down. I've let myself down. I'm, I'm bringing harm into my life and into the people around me for absolutely no reason. That's what the grace should actually be doing to us. It doesn't take us and make us uh, want to sin more. It actually makes sin hurt more. Grace makes sin hurt more. It makes us feel it more. It makes us want to respond 
better. Uh, so I want to please God now. The, the person who lives in the realm of the Spirit wants to please God. And this is what Paul is getting at. When you live in the realm of the flesh, you don't want to please God because the flesh is hostile to God. When you live in the realm of the Spirit, you desire to please God even when you fail. You know, one of the things I've discovered about myself, and I had this conversation, Glenn Marsh and I were talking about this yesterday at the picnic. You know what I've discovered about myself as I've walked longer with the Lord? It isn't necessarily that I've become a better. It isn't necessarily that I sin less. I've discovered that when I was a young Christian, I sinned kind of recklessly and stupidly and naively. I just sort of charged into everything and didn't care. As I've gotten older, I've become devious. Right? I'm sneaky now. Uh, the, the little jabs and the little comments and the little things said here or there, the little thoughts that I entertain, all of that, I'm still just as much a sinner as I ever was. I've just become a lot better at it. This is the tension that we live in between the life in the flesh and the life in the spirit. We desire to do good, as Paul says in Romans 7, but the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do do. Here's the point. I want righteousness. And here's the thing. I think you want righteousness too. I've been a pastor now for going on 14 years. And one of the things I've discovered is that when we are in a moralistic context within a church, everyone comes to church and the pastor yells at them and says, you're horrible, you need to do better. And what I've realized is, you're all here because you know you're horrible. <laughs> I don't need to tell you you're horrible. You know it already. What you need to be told is that God wants to change your affections. He wants to make you different from the inside out. And so, yeah, you're rotten. You're rotten. But God's working on you, and he's not done with you, and you won't always be rotten. So go and live like someone who's being changed. Someone who's got the work of the Holy Spirit in them, uh, doing something magnificent and better. Because what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind will justify. See, when my heart changes... And I want to, to follow after the Lord. Um, my will then chooses often to do that. Though in, in an imperfect sinful world, I often choose the opposite. But what also happens with the mind is that righteousness starts to make sense. I, I'm doing a lot of premarital counseling right now. We've, we've talked about this. We have a lot of weddings this summer. And it occurred to me when I'm talking to several of my couples, um, and, and several of my couples, maybe most, I don't know, but, but, but they've, they've lived purely between them. And I've said to them, if you're seeking to follow the Lord, you will never regret that. You'll never regret that. Because when you love the Lord and you love the things of the Lord, living the way the Lord wants you to live together makes perfect sense. Your mind begins to see clearly why God calls us to righteousness. But you're never going to convince someone who's hell-bent for destruction. You're never going to just convince them through logical argument that they're destroying themselves through sin. They have to have their hearts changed first. And so that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so we have to have the proper placement of debt. We do not owe the flesh anything. You do not owe the flesh your allegiance because it never did anything for you but bring you harm. But we owe the Holy Spirit and the power and, and Jesus Christ and the power of the cross. We owe it everything. And whereas the flesh always takes and never gives... Grace always gives and never takes and, and makes, you, makes us different. So we have a, need to have a proper placement of debt, but we also have to have a proper displacement of fear. 
Paul goes in then uh, Romans uh, chapter eight verse fourteen. Uh, chapter eight verse fourteen. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So there's this assumption again. He's talking to Romans who are Christians. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, which is all you Romans, all you Christians, you are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now this is this is interesting. You are sons of God. You've been adopted. I have a friend who was adopted, and, and I said to him once, what's that like for you as an adult, knowing that you were given up for adoption? And he says, you know, there are two ways you can look at it. You can look at it on the one hand and say, my birth mother didn't want me, and she gave me up. But you can also look at it on the other side, which is to say that somebody did want me, and they chose me, and they made me an heir, and they brought me into their family. And so we look at adoption. If you have the Holy Spirit, if you're living in the realm of the Holy Spirit, you have been adopted. You are a son and a daughter of God because you have the Holy Spirit in you and you're living in the, the realm of the Spirit. And for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We have a new spirit in us, not the spirit of slavery that leads to fear. What is he talking about there? What is there to be afraid of? Well, he's talking about the fear of God's judgment. He's, he's reminding them, yes, a Christian who lives in the realm of the Spirit will, will want to and desire to pursue righteousness. And you have not been given a spirit of fear that when you fail, God is going to crush you. You're not going to fall back into fear because you have been given this new spirit that's not the spirit of slavery. It's the spirit of freedom. And you have received this spirit because of your adoptions as son by whom you can cry, Abba, Father. Here's the point. When you are living in the realm of the spirit and your affections are being changed and you're following after God and you fail anyway, which we do. We know we do. That's why we're here tonight because we fail constantly. Paul is reminding his readers, you can always call out Abba, Father. You can always Repent and go back to your father and he will strengthen you. See, I find it comforting. I find it comforting to know that my sanctification, that my holiness, that my daily living is not entirely dependent upon me. Because I'm mostly a wreck. I'm really comforted by the fact that there is a Holy Spirit in me and in you that is working, that is calling us. And that when we fail, we can call back to God, Abba, Father. And we don't have to be afraid. You see, this is a win-win for us. I mean, if you figured this out, like when you actually put the gospel in, in like really common terms, it's sort of insane that grace gives and never takes. That the Holy Spirit is doing the work of changing your affections. And when you mess up, you can always come back. You are only winning if you're in Christ. You're only winning and you're never losing. And so we have to have a displacement of fear. There's nothing left for us to be afraid of. And so when you're failing, when you're in that tug of war game and they've explained all the rules and you realize there's no way you're going to win under the rules as they've been given because the rules are meant to against you, meant to, to destroy you. They're working against you. The rule of the flesh is working against you. It only wants to crush you. When you're in that position, when, when your own strength is failing, when your teammates are failing, where all the people around you who are supposed to love you and give you support are actually just heaping scorn on you, you know what you need to do? You need to cheat. You need to find that beam underneath <laughs> 
that doesn't move and put your feet on it and hang on. And that beam is the power of God in your life through the working of the Holy Spirit. That's the thing you hang on to. That's the thing that will never fail you. And yeah, other people are going to look at you because they're all playing the game of self-righteousness and they're playing the game of living in the flesh. They're going to look at you like you're crazy because you're cheating. But you know what happens when you cheat in this game? (laughs) You win because you've anchored your feet in something that doesn't move. And so I'm encouraging you, this game of life that we're in, that's telling you that you're on your own, that's telling you that, that you have to work it out yourself, that's telling you that no one actually cares and you're really just a bad screw up, you can change the rules. You, you can play by the actual rules that they don't want you to know about, what Lewis calls the deeper magic. The stuff that's under the surface that goes so much deeper, that anchors us in Christ and anchors us in the Holy Spirit. That's where you put your faith. That's where you put your trust. And that's how we can have a proper placement of debt and a proper displacement of fear. How we can trust in Christ. Father, make us a people who trust in you, who anchor ourselves in you, who trust that you are changing our affections and make us so love you that it becomes our ever-driving passion to serve you well. And Father, thank you that when we fail, which will likely be in the next five minutes or tomorrow, that we can call out Abba Father and you're always there to welcome us back. And may we love you well because you've loved us so, so well. Thank you.